Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And it is becoming a regular podcast about The Call of Cthulhu, because here we are with part two of The Call of Cthulhu. And of course, by The Call of Cthulhu, what we mean is Lovecraft's short story, The Call of Cthulhu. But before all that, we have some news. We have more news. News that bears very much upon this very topic, in fact. For Andrew Lehman of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society has been reading, reading out loud, fortunately for us, and they now have the complete fiction of H.P. Lovecraft available, or will be soon available, as an audiobook. Woohoo! Well, you say an audiobook. I mean, th- this is kind of an audio library. Mm. I, this is a big, big project. I, I think they said it was something like 70 hours of audio, or maybe even more. I can well imagine that would be the case. Yeah, and so much so that they're not putting it out in normal physical media, not not traditionally on discs or anything like that. Uh, the way they're releasing it is twofold. One as a digital download, uh, which apparently is about five gigabytes. Or alternatively, you can buy a physical edition, but the physical edition comes on a USB stick, uh, which is embedded in something that's, that's a mock-up of a book. But the important part is that 16 gig USB stick that has got all the readings. And Andrew's readings are without compare, really. I mean, they're, they're, he is a fantastic reader of, uh, of Lovecraft's work. And this is coming out as a birthday present to Lovecraft himself. Aww. It has been released on his birthday, which is the 20th of August. Uh, there are pre-orders up on the HPLHS website at the moment. And if you pre-order, you get a whole bunch of additional material with it that is pre-order only. Now, in the last episode, we spoke with Sandy Peterson... And he had some things to say about the story, The Call of Cthulhu. And you know what? Sandy's been working on some new board games. Well, an old board game, but with more new bits for it. So there is Onslaught 3 of Cthulhu Wars. As I speak right now, the Kickstarter isn't live, but probably as you're hearing this, as this episode is launched, it almost certainly is live if things are going to plan. And there's a raft of stuff. Matt, you've got a lot of the Cthulhu Wars boxes of games, right? There's and a reason the why I'm moving house, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to make need room a, for all this. need bigger house. Yeah. So there's a whole new list of stuff coming out for it. Yeah, there's a Chocho expansion. There's a Shigai expansion. The Shigai map, right? Yes, that's it. Along with things like the in the same vein as they've done with the Dreamlands map and the Fortis Player expansion map. There's a Neartholotep expansion looking at different avatars of the god. And good old Hounds of Tindalos appear in the Beyond Time and Space one as well. Yeah, so there's a whole bundle of stuff right there for your Cthulhu Wars game. It is a great game, but I haven't played it very much. I think I've played with one of the expansions. I've played the basic set a few times, and it's uh, really good fun, really replayable. Yeah, we should get together sometime and play mm. with the, you know, all, I know you've got a whole bunch of expansions, Matt. Yeah, I've got, the, I think, the four main ones that there currently are before yeah. the maps yeah yeah that'd be uh, good to get together and play those but having just looked at the website there are now enough expansions and boxes out there that i think if you bought all of them and had all the boxes together you could just rebuild really using them pretty yeah. much there's a lot of stuff there yeah yeah but that's enough of that for it is now time friends for 
the Lovecraftian word of the uh, week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, our word is fragments. It's a noun. One, small parts broken off or detached. Two, incomplete or isolated portions. Three, grammar. Sentence fragments. And this is another example of a very simple, possibly even almost everyday word. I love one that always uses the same word to describe itself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's a simple word that... I, I don't know, for me at least, has very Lovecraftian overtones. Because so much of Lovecraft's fiction involves people piecing together fragmentary evidence and seeing little glimpses of things and this slow accretion of detail until you get that final unholy revelation. Because fragments very much implies something that you need to put back together. Mm. And we see it used 71 times in Lovecraft's fiction and also the title of the second Cthulhu Companion. Fragments of fear. Mm. Let's take a look at how Lovecraft used the word fragments in his writings. From the nameless city. In the darkness there flashed before my mind fragments of my cherished treasury of demoniac lore. Sentences from Alhazred the Mad Arab, paragraphs from the apocryphal nightmares of Damascus, and infamous lines from the delirious image du monde of Gautier de Metz. And from the call of Cthulhu. This bore regular fruit, for after the first interview the manuscript records daily calls of the young man, during which he related startling fragments of nocturnal imagery whose burden was always some terrible cyclopean vista of dark and dripping stone, with a subterranean voice or intelligence shouting monotonously in enigmatical sense impacts uninscribable save as gibberish. And from the Silver Key. When he complained and longed to escape into twilight realms, where magic moulded all the little vivid fragments and prized associations of his mind into vistas of breathless expectancy and unquenchable delight, they turned him instead toward the newfound prodigies of science, bidding him find wonder in the atom's vortex and mystery in the sky's dimensions. And now on to our main topic, The Call of Cthulhu, The Madness from the Sea. Last episode, we covered the first two parts of The Call of Cthulhu, which is broken into three parts. And this third part builds upon the more passive investigations that our narrator Thurston has been through, and now puts him into a bit more of a, an active role, a perhaps ultimately dangerously active role. But I like to think here that he's kind of lost the thread of it all. He's, he's followed up his leads, he's been through his uncle's box of papers and documents and he's been to the cuttings agency and got a load of bits of information and indeed he's uh, looked into the archaeological meeting and, and so on there. And, and gone off and spoken to the artist who created the bar release. Yes, Will Cox, he's chatted to him in his abhorrent house in Providence. <laughs> Detestable <laughs> and, architecture. 
and now he's kind of like, oh, I don't really know what to do. So this is where in, in the Call of Cthulhu game, we might call for the, the new idea role, whereby if he makes the role, it puts him back on track. And if he fails the role, then it'd get put back on track in, you know, perhaps in a, in a bad way for him, perhaps I, uh, having some cultists turn up at his door or something. But here... Well, yeah, so here it's debatable whether it's good or bad because there's no immediate bad consequence, but dear God, is he shafted long term? Well, there's always bad consequences long term, Scott. <laughs> but curiously, like life. <laughs> but curiously, here he finds the lead on what is strangely called a piece of shelf paper. Yeah. One of his colleagues, uh, or a friend of his rather, works in a museum in New Jersey. Thurston is going off visiting him and looks at some papers that this guy has put on a shelf to avoid damage to the shelf, I assume. Mm, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, his, his uh, friend has used newspapers. Um, somehow he's managed to get hold of a newspaper from Australia. The Sydney Bulletin from the 18th of April, 1925, which has an article which catches his eye. The article tells of the discovery of a derelict ship in the Pacific Ocean called The Alert, but only one survivor lived to tell the story. A Norwegian sailor by the name of Gustav Johansson, a second mate on the schooner The Emma out of Auckland, New Zealand, that discovered The Alert in the sea. Yeah, yeah, so the one survivor on board the ship isn't even from the ship. The Emma, which Johansson was originally on board, uh, had encountered this ship called The Alert. The crew are described in very typically, unfortunately, Lovecraftian terms as a queer and evil-looking crew of uh, Kanakas, uh, which apparently is now a fairly pejorative term for Pacific Islanders, uh, quote, half-castes, unquote, from New Zealand. The crew of the Emma encounter this boat. The crew on the alert are somewhat maddened and uh, violent and attack the crew of the Emma. In the process of fighting for their lives, the crew of the Emma actually end up killing everyone on board the Alert. The crew of the Alert at first try to warn them away. So they're not, they're not at first violent. They try to warn them back because they don't, I guess they don't want, you know, don't come over here because really is risen. Yeah, for some reason, the, the crew of the Emma kind of take against them. Yeah, so much so that, um, according to the reports, you know, they, they feel justified in killing every last man on board the vessel. You know, it doesn't even sound like they needed to do so in order to make uh, themselves safe, but, yeah, you, you just have to make sure sometimes. Yeah, it's almost like Scott was playing every single player character on the, the Emma. <laughs> take off and nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. But in the process of this attack, the Emma itself is really badly damaged, so much so that it's unseaworthy. So the surviving crew of the Emma end up going on board the Alert. Thurston, upon reading this, looks at the dates involved, uh, the fact that this happened um, around the same time as all the madness that he'd been investigating, and uh, puts two and two together and assumes that this is something to do with uh, the Cthulhu cult and all the weirdness uh, that seems to be associated with that. And so he actually goes as far as to travel to New Zealand, first of all, uh, to look into uh, the origin of the crew of the Alert, and then goes on from there to Australia, uh, to Sydney. There he sees an artefact, a statue that had been recovered from the Alert, which is now in a museum there, which bears a striking resemblance to the statue that Legrasse described. Dun, dun, dun! Two pieces of the jigsaw puzzle coming together. 
Indeed. Here we are, Call of Cthulhu world-spanning campaign. <laughs> so he's just been to New Zealand, and now he's off to Norway. That red line across the map, I love that bit. And he finds himself in Oslo, searching down Johansson, who, what do you know, died just a short time ago. After an encounter with, quote, two Lascar sailors. Uh, yeah, that, that's a word I actually had to look up. Uh, and at least according to Wikipedia, Lascar was a sailor or militia man from Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, the Arab world and other territories located to the east of the Cape of Good Hope. So anyway, so Thurston tracks down yeah. Johansson's house and speaks to Johansson's widow. And he questions her a little about Johansson, and she is kind enough to lend him a journal that Johansson had written. It's a, she says uh, it's written in English. She doesn't speak English, and she believes it to be some technical data uh, that you know might possibly be of interest. And Thurston agrees to borrow it. Part of what must have inspired Thurston to follow up this lead was the story of this uncharted island that the sailors had discovered after having taken to going on board the Alert. Johansson describes the island that had risen from the sea as a coastline of mingled mud, ooze and weedy cyclopean masonry, which can have been nothing less than the tangible substance of Earth's supreme terror, the nightmare corpse city of Relay. I love the term corpse city. Yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah, it's the ambiguity there. Is the city itself the corpse? Is it filled with corpses? Is it both? Is it a dead city? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, Johansson, he's got another seven people with him as they arrive. Half a dozen of them disembark and start searching around this strange island. And this really is a strange island. I mean, Johansson describes it. Without knowing what futurism looked like, Johansson achieved something very close to it when he spoke of the city. For instead of describing any definite structure or building, he dwells only on broad impressions of vast angles and stone surfaces, surfaces too great to belong to anything right or, or proper for this earth, and impious with horrible images and hieroglyphs. I mention his talk about angles because it suggests something Wilcox had told me of his awful dreams. He has said that the geometry of the dream place he saw was abnormal, non-Euclidean, and loathsomely redolent of spheres and dimensions apart from ours. Now an unlettered seaman felt the same thing whilst gazing at the terrible reality. He has a wonderfully purple vocabulary for a Norwegian seaman. <laughs> yes, yes he does. And he describes a great doorway on the island. Although quite how they know it's a doorway, it's a, it's a vast thing which they, they end up rather foolishly poking and prodding at until somehow it begins to open. And the descriptions, the sensory experiences they get upon opening this door are fantastic in the story. We're talking about the, this, you know, tangible, tenebrous darkness, uh, you know, that's the, the, like a living thing. And that the, leaps out at them almost, yeah. yeah. And, and the, you know, the smell that just about fells them on the spot. But, you know, as horrible as these things are, these are the least of their problems because something comes out of that doorway. The aperture was black with the darkness almost material. The tenebrousness was indeed a positive quality, 
for it obscured such parts of the inner walls as ought to have been revealed, and actually burst forth like smoke from an aeon-long imprisonment, visibly darkening the sun as it slunk away into the shrunken and gibbous sky on flapping membranous wings. The odour arising from the newly opened depths was intolerable, and at length the quick-eared Hawkins thought he heard a nasty, slopping sound down there. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening still when it lumbered slopperingly into sight, and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity from the black doorway into the tainted outside air of that poisoned city of madness. A creature indescribable and of unimaginable size sweeps up some of the crew in its flabby claws kill 1d4 investigators per round exactly <laughs> so here we have cthulhu in person coming out of this big doorway of this island that's risen out of the pacific ocean and going back to something you said last episode, and yes, you are absolutely right in this. We were talking about whether or not it was down to mankind at all to free the Great Old Ones. And you did make the point that, you know, there was some action on the part of these sailors in opening the door. And yeah, I mean, it does actually say in the text, the stars were right again, and what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. Mm. Uh, so it does make it sound like, even with the stars being right, or in this case, really a being risen, whatever it is, he still needs to be released through some kind of action. Yeah, which which implies those those cultists were actually onto something. Maybe, maybe. I, I, You're I, not I, convinced, are you, Scott? No, I'm not. You I don't still, like these cultists? No, I think they're idiots. <laughs> murderous <laughs> idiots. Yep, yeah. murderous idiots. Yeah. That's my new band name. <laughs> Although, I think probably of all of the terror of having been picked up by this gigantic mountain-like being, I think probably the more scary thing for me is that just one sailor just gets swallowed up by an angle. Mm. Yeah, and that is a really just creepy, almost throwaway comment in, in this. That, yeah, you, you get all of these sailors meeting this horrible fate at the, you know, at the hands or the claws of this creature that is described as being like a walking mountain that is too horrible to even get the human mind around. But, yeah, you get this one person who, in running away from it, steps in between two of the stones and just falls through an angle that shouldn't be there and disappears out of sight. Where does he go? What is over there i mean is, is, that, is that death is he you know somewhere worse than death is he ever going to be allowed to die what has he fallen into? okay matt's character has mm -hmm. been picked up and crushed to death by cthulhu story of my life scott you're just you're running away right can you give me a dodge roll or oh, you failed oh you fall into an angle you're dead that character you've been playing for four months fell into a weird angle he's dead that sounds like a D&D &D character. You can't speak I, now, you're dead. I had died once. Under <laughs> yeah. very similar circumstances. Yeah, I know. Hey, at, least yeah. at least you got a solid dodge roll. All he did was roll a D4 and I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> so ultimately, there's like Johansson and one other guy on the boat. And they're like, full yeah. steam ahead. Yeah, William Bryden is the other guy. Well, we don't need his name, really. He doesn't last long, does he? <laughs> no, he he just bursts into laughter, which I think, you know, is a good uh, kind of random thing on the madness table. And he just laughs himself to death. <laughs> Pretty much, Pretty yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, goes mad and dies. He you know, gets ticks both of the boxes on the Call of Cthulhu investigator progression chart. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much the best fate of any of the eight people that went to the island. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, I mean, except, I mean, the guy who fell between the stones. Yeah, may, I mean, we're making a lot of assumptions there. We're assuming that whatever's on the other side is horrible. I don't know. Maybe he ended up in the land of unicorns and puppies and fluffy clouds. You tell yourself that, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he fell into that angle and came out in a world where everything was made of plushes. No, I, I said something That's nice. what happened to your character, Scott. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I choose death. <laughs> you know, you can't have it. Now that Johansson and Brighton are in charge of this boat, or, you know, really Johansson and Brighton is just laughing his nuts off. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> uh, Johansson decides that he has got to do something that really, I, I guess most Call of Cthulhu investigators probably would try doing, but is still absolute lunacy, which is he's going to pilot this boat, he's going to turn it round, and he's going to headbutt Cthulhu with a boat. You know, that's what they do in the end of Jaws, Jaws the Revenge. Pretty much it's just a retelling of that. <laughs> yeah, it's just a retelling of the Call of Cthulhu. <laughs> I thought he reversed it in. No, I, I think he turns it round and and drives it straight. In. You, you could be right. I mean, but uh, either way, that, he rams Cthulhu with the boat. And you know, we talked before about Cthulhu not really being of flesh and blood, sort of partly material, partly immaterial. But what he does, he manages to pop him, and he bursts. Right? Yeah, bursts the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, burst a bubble, mm-hmm. and hooray! Cthulhu is no more. We've killed him. Yay, we win. Full steam ahead. Uh oh. Wait. <laughs> Do you want to just look? Anybody looking back? No. As you drive the, the boat no. away? No, the, the laughing guy did. You're looking back, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you can see him. You can see him slowly reforming. I'll, I'll get that D10, D100 ready then. Yeah. He never goes away, really. And Whoa. this this is an awesome scene, right? So there's mm. a great old one, like. One of the most powerful things in the game, you get rammed with a steamship, one of the most powerful bits of um, machinery equipment around of the time. I mean, I mean, if that's the case, Paul, why is there not an entry for steamship in the weapons tables in Call of Cthulhu? You failed us. I think there this, is. Th- this there is. The, is. You just <laughs> haven't read it properly, Scott. <laughs> this is the archetypal weapon. Every investigator should have one. Yeah. I don't care if the adventure takes place on land. Matt's, I want a steamship. Matt has one with a death ray on it. But the thing is, they actually do defeat Cthulhu. Well, in combat, of. well, temporarily defeat him. Yeah, but they defeat him enough to get away, which is yeah. the important thing. Most gamers, yeah, that's that's not going to happen. You've got no yeah. chance. It's a flesh wound. Yeah, yeah. I, and I mean, you say they get away. I mean, in the end, out of he the entire away. boatload, well, out of the entire boatload of people, there is one survivor. Yeah, he gets away. <laughs> And then gets no- and then gets uh, knocked down in a street, somewhat reminiscently. Yeah. Yeah, and then just a bloody evil GM, just by GM Fiat, just says, "Oh, you get knocked by some guy in the street and die." Oh no, maybe he got to make I a luck the roll. Whole- huh? He might have got to make a luck roll. Yeah, you think? Yeah, he spent all his luck getting away from Cthulhu. Yeah, he's down to zero one luck, and the GM is right. Okay, let's see whether you bump into any cultists in the street. Make that luck roll. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Hansen has returned. But he's a broken man, his wife has recounted. And one day, whilst walking through a narrow alleyway in the docks, he was hit by papers falling from an attic window, which is quite a poetic uh, it is. way to go. Well, it, it even kind of works thematically because what we sort of 
then find out almost immediately after that is that Thurston realises that by his encounter with this box of papers, he has effectively brought about his own demise. Oh, indeed, yes, yes. And at that scene, the Lascar sailors are there, as you said, to sort of help him to his feet. Oh, but he's dead before the ambulance arrives. These things happen. Yeah. And we finish with Thurston telling how he has all this information now and he's put it all together, but how he wouldn't want anyone else to possess this and put it together themselves. In fact, he even says that he hopes that my executors may put caution before audacity and see that this manuscript meets no other eye. And that's the end of the story. But if we recall back to the beginning of the story, we're reading the papers of the late Thursden. And also, we're reading we're reading absolutely papers (laughs) this does beg the question why didn't thurston just destroy this material but perhaps there's some compulsion not to destroy it or or perhaps he planned to but never got a chance to before he was killed by the cthulhu cult yeah that he was still trying to piece these last bits together maybe he even thought that if he managed to piece enough of it together he'd get a key bit of information that would allow him to save his life or protect himself yeah or perhaps to overcome it in some way perhaps he was hoping to because otherwise it's like well why would he pen this story why would he have done all this he doesn't want to pass it on he wants it to to finish with him so yeah the only justification i could see for that really is that he is trying to overcome it in some way as a, as a good uh, Call of Cthulhu investigator would. For all the downbeatness of that ending, with the implied death of Thurston and you know, the doom being passed on to us for the temerity of reading his words, they, there is sort of a, a happy implied ending, or happier implied ending. There is? In that, uh, you know, at least, really appears to have sunk at the end of it, that the madness stopped, Cthulhu hmm. was drawn back down to the bottom of the sea, and waits there again. Yeah it, does the assert stars that, are right. yeah, it does assert that the, the island had sunk, didn't it? Because yeah. there's a ship passed over it. There was one part right towards the end, which I think I took some inspiration from when doing the backstory elements in, in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. He says, I have looked upon all that the universe has to hold of horror, and even the skies of spring and the flowers of summer must ever afterward be poison to me. And there's the idea in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game that you've got all those backstory elements that start as as positive things, but then through play and through episodes of insanity and so on, slowly get eroded away. So there's all those those good things. And those good things still exist in the world, but for him, they're no longer good. They no longer bring a sense of joy or satisfaction. That's because he developed hay fever. (laughs) Is that it? If only he had had antihistamines. There you go. Drugs, they solve everything. The sun to me is dark and silent is the moon. Hail, horrors, hail. And now we look at inspirations for and adaptations of The Call of Cthulhu. Well, obviously the big one is the film. In 2004, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, who we've already mentioned on this podcast, did a silent film, filmed in mythoscope. Indeed, yes. Black and white, silent film of The Call of Cthulhu. With a nice bombastic soundtrack. Yeah, it's marvellous. Yes, oh, yes. We actually went to the premiere, that in, in Sweden. Oh, we did, uh, it was yes. The first, the first three of us. Showing of it. I, I brought yeah. the CD soundtrack as well, yeah. 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 At the, what was that called? Miskatonicon. Yes, that's it, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, back in 2005. 
Yeah. yeah, a combined showing of this film. And the same weekend, we had a live production of the Shoggoth on the Roof musical. One of only two live productions, I think. Mm. Yeah. And, and the only one in Swedish. Yeah, the ghoul that stole the show. <laughs> it was marvellous, even if, even if none of us actually speak Swedish. And uh, we, we also got to play in a LARP that the HBLHS uh, created, which oh, was... Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that, that's a story for another show, but dear God, that was... Mm. Body yeah, bags, was eating props... Yeah. But anyway, back to the Call of Cthulhu and the silent film thereof. What can you say? It, yeah, a, a great short film that I would recommend to everybody. Yeah, I, it is a very faithful adaptation of the story. It's obviously quite low budget, but the fact that it's done as this mock 1920s uh, black and white silent film means that the limitations in the budget that they had actually end up adding to the very similitude of uh, what they, you know, what the final product is. And it actually really does look like a period film. And I strongly recommend watching the bonus extras documentary about the making of, particularly when they audition actors for the role of cultists in the swamp. And you just get people turning up and just doing the most crazy things. Um, and you know, that's in colour and they've kind of got all this green makeup on and stuff. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. The bit, the bit I always find was a nice little Easter egg is when they have the audio track running over what um, the artist is actually saying uh, during his interview uh, with Angel. Right. When he's basically just quoting large passages of text about the descriptions of Relay. And there's Angel's very slowly, with his wide eyes, closing his notebook, <laughs> <laughs> while the rest of the cast, off, uh, the rest of the crew off screen, are kind of la- laughing and clapping him on. <laughs> uh, and of course, there is another film from 2000 called Cthulhu, which um, I, I think is actually quite a good film. It's a very divisive one. On the other hand, it isn't an adaptation of The Call of yeah, Cthulhu. It, it shares the title, one word yeah. of the title. That's yeah. it. <laughs> it. It is, in fact, a very sort of free uh, adaptation, or at least uh, loosely inspired by The Shadow of Rinsmith. Cthulhu gets name-checked, as he does in The Shadow of Rinsmith, but yeah, Cthulhu is not an, an adaptation of The Call of Cthulhu. Going back must be well, a good couple of years now. Um, a group of us went down to a theatre in Hemel Hempstead, which I just remember having the world's smallest seats and having to be an amputee because I swear my knees were like the first person three rows in front of me. Um, of Michael Sabaton performing The Call of Cthulhu as a one man stage show. And by God, I mean, the man has talent that he can give an array of performances the one person suddenly becomes all the characters the body language he takes on the very small tweaks in costuming it's phenomenal in what he does with that in such in such a relatively short space of time as well please, please tell me he portrays cthulhu by stomping across the stage and waving his fingers in front of his <laughs> I chin i don't think he plays Cthulhu. i saw um, it in uh, in edinburgh at the fringe um yeah a number of years ago there is a light show in it because yeah um, uses, because it uses quite a lot of effects doesn't it and set and so on yeah i think that the, there is a green colored light show representing the the dreams that people get sent and yeah there is the um alongside sound effects as well so yeah, there is at least a performance of cthulhu in there and the same guy's done a couple of other theater pieces based on Lovecraft's work, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's done The Temple, which I understand is pretty uh, pretty effective. And I think he's working on Polaris at the minute. Mm. Okay, that's an unusual choice. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's different, definitely, yeah. 
And of course, as the Call of Cthulhu has inspired a number of works, it too has got, I'd say, some fairly readily identifiable inspirations. Yeah, I mean, how many of these were direct inspirations is is hard to tell, but certainly I think we can be fairly sure that Lovecraft read some of these, if Mm. not all. Well, I mean, obviously the big one is his own work, Dagon. Okay, yeah, sure. Pretty sure he read that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We did mention this in passing in the last episode, but just to reiterate, you know, certainly the the third part of uh, the Call of Cthulhu uh, does seem to be not a reworking, but certainly you know a reimagining, an expansion of of some of the ideas in Dagon. Using the idea that those of us that have now read the story are now going to befall the same fate that happened to Thurston and happened to Angel before him and happened to Johansson and so forth, this is very reminiscent of M.R. James's Casting the Runes, where this piece of paper with this rune is passed to you and that the demon will come for you in so many days' time unless you can pass the rune back on to the person who gave it to you. So, yeah, I think he's, he's lifted from James. I'm a happy man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lift might be an overstatement, but there certainly is that similarity of sort of this, this sharing of doom uh, through a written form. Yeah, that they'll evolve it later with um, was it Koji Suzuki who wrote uh, Ring and yeah. Spiral. That, yes. Yeah. Seven days. <laughs> and Lovecraft scholar Robert M. Price in the Cthulhu Cycle attributes Cthulhu as being influenced by Tennyson's poem The Kraken. I thought this was interesting. I'd never actually read The Kraken before, though, and this is an 1830 poem by Tennyson. And it's quite a short one, so um, as it's out of copyright, let's read it. The Kraken. Below the thunders of the upper deep, far, far beneath in the abysmal sea, his ancient, dreamless, uninvaded sleep, the Kraken sleepeth, Faintest sunlights flee about his shadowy sides. Above him swell huge sponges of millennial growth and height. And far away into the sickly light, from many a wondrous grot and secret cell, unnumbered and enormous polypi, winnow with giant arms the slumbering green. There hath he lain for ages, and will lie, battening upon huge sea-worms in his sleep, until the latter fire shall heat the deep. Then once by man and angels to be seen, in roaring he shall rise, and on the surface die. But that is not dead, which can eternal lie. Damn straight. S.T. Joshi mentions the possible inspiration of Guy de Maupassant's The Hauler, with its description of invisible presence bringing madness. I want to read that now. That's not one that's come across on my list. Right, uh, we, yeah. we did do a few of Maupassant's uh, works at university, um, not university, at school. I can't remember for the life of me which one it was, but I do remember the name. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I've read this many years ago and enjoyed it. And recently, I was trying to brush up my French, so I was trying to read it in French just to, uh, just to exercise those muscles again. And, Sacre yeah, bleu! Yeah, bien, bien sûr. No, that... Yeah, <laughs> no, let's let's not do that. 
And I suppose the other story that has got some similarities, or yeah, at least may have influenced the structure somewhat, would be uh, Arthur Mackin's The Novel of the Black Seal from The uh, Three Imposters, one of my favourite Mackin stories, and has got this similar idea of just sort of piecing together stuff after the event from you know, a series of clues and, and that being the narrative structure. But honestly, Lovecraft does it better here. Now let's take a look at what we can take from The Call of Cthulhu for gaming. Well, we've already sort of mentioned in passing what it would be like to pull out that box of papers that Professor Angel left behind and just give that as one big mammoth handout to the players. I was going to say, there is at least one campaign I can think of where it's done on a much smaller scale. You mean masks? Yeah, because you get a whole load of handouts thrown at you right at the start of that. You've got your matchbox, you've got the headed notepaper, you've got uh, newspaper clippings. You've got all this just in a not a mm. huge box format, but it's just the similar effect of throwing a whole load of leads at the investigators and then going, right, what do you do with it? Mm. Yeah, I with with masks, I mean, they're little bits that will lead you to, you know, to, to other investigations. I agree, the kind of scope of them and the, the breadth of them there, yes, is a bit reminiscent. What... This has that masks doesn't in that respect, I suppose, is the depth of what those those represent. Mm-hmm. That yes, I mean you're you're seeing perhaps a newspaper clipping or a bit of headed notepaper that will lead you down a particular path. But you know, with the reference to Lagrasse's story, what you're seeing there is you know almost like a link to an entire different scenario. Yeah, it's almost a story within a story, isn't it? You've got a whole telling of this story of the conference first and then of the raid in the swamp, which I guess one could, you could almost give them the handout and then if they decide, okay, we're going to look, we're going to read through this one about the raid in the swamp, then we could do that maybe as a flashback or something. We could, you know, say, okay, well, here's some sort of very brief pre-gens and here's the situation. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how that would play out. I mean, it might feel just like a bit of exposition and info dump. If you could do it well, I think that could work. I mean, one thing that occurs to me is sort of twisting things around slightly. And perhaps, you know, the handout that you give at the beginning there is that situation, is Mm. the pre-gens and so on. And it's just sort of, right, okay, I'm digging through the box. Yeah, I I find this bit of paper and it's right. Okay, we're going to play this bit, take these characters. You are, you know, uh, uh, visitors or delegates at this academic conference you know we play through this get that information out right yeah make some notes on that and yeah what you experienced right those notes you made that's your handout the advantage of that i suppose is that if it plays out differently than you expect let's say that you know you're drilling down a couple of levels deep that one of the things that you you know you're playing through there is the the raid on the louisiana bayou hmm. And things go differently than you expect. Perhaps you end up having to improvise something a bit different because the players decide that they are going to go to that hidden lake and confront the polypus mass. Maybe they're going to go down into the caves there and find out what these bat-like creatures are. Or kill all the cultists and burn down the swamp. Yeah, that kind of thing, yes. <laughs> but whatever it is, that is going to end up making for a very different set of events than you know, the handout that you would have written otherwise. By playing through all that and then sort of saying, right, your your notes now are the handout and this is going to be the basis for what your characters in the present day have, then you're creating a much more dynamic game. It's obviously a lot more difficult to pull off and it's you know, not mm. going to be for everyone, but I think that'd be a really cool way of doing it. Now, cults are 
an omnipresent feature of Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game. Very commonly, cultists and cults appear in scenarios. In a lot of the Lovecraft stories, we don't see too much of the cults, but here they are integral throughout the story. We have the the, the cult, the, the Inuit or Eskimo cult in the north. We have the people in the Louisiana bayou. We have the people on the ship um, the in, in the Pacific, the sailors. Yeah. The people who killed Professor Angel, the people who killed uh, Johansson. Yeah, so we have this this cult which seems to be world-spanning and seems to be interlinked somehow. It's interesting because the way the cult is presented is is almost in conflict with itself there. That, you know, it, it, you get this disparate series of entities like uh, the Greenland bit, like the Louisiana bit. And, yeah, you know, I kind of joked about it earlier, but the Louisiana cultists do on the whole come across as idiots. No, I mean, Castro seems to have quite a lot of yeah. um, wits about him and have a lot of information. But yeah, whether we take it as a world-spanning organised cult or people who somehow get inspired as individuals to go off and do things, you know, to take out people who know about the cult, it's, it's we're not really given much of a window into the cult, are we? We see little no. bits here and there. And that's what makes them terrifying in the story. The fact that we don't know how they operate, the fact that they could be anyone, and the fact that, uh, at least when it comes to the way they deal with Angel and Johansson and, by implication, Thurston, that they seem to be terrifyingly effective. Effective? And yet, what are they doing? They're there for when the stars come right, that they will serve their purpose and go and help Cthulhu become manifest in the world again? Well, yeah, it's a question of, yeah, I mean, do they really know? Because, I mean, let's say for argument's sake that that is their entire purpose, then what the hell are rights like the, you know, the, the you know, blood orgy in Louisiana? What are they for? I mean, those just seem to be sort of gratifications of very human murderous desires. They, they seem to be absolutely nothing to do with the worship of the great old ones and the greater scheme of in, uh, ensuring their freedom. Well, one could ask that of many religions, I suppose. Hmm. Um, yeah. You know, what is the point and what are they doing between now and Judgment Day? You know, if one were to par parallel kind of a Judgment Day with the, the rise of Cthulhu and the stars coming, right? There's a kind of an ultimate time of things happening. The party that's going on in the swamp, you know, if you're a cultist and you're devoted to this then, yeah, again, we don't really know what that was about. And there was the white thing in the swamp, that big monster with the luminous eyes and the bat-winged creatures that come up out of the depths. You know, there's so much there that we don't really know quite what it's about. So as an investigator, we'd have to go there and talk to people and try and find out more. Well, as a keeper, let's seize upon some of these elements and think what we do with them. I, I'm fairly sure there is a scenario which does deal with this white thing out in the swamp, because I know I've read it somewhere. Okay, but let's let's pretend that doesn't exist and okay. you know, think how we do it ourselves. Let's start with the white thing out in the swamp. The thing that sort of appeals to me the most out of you know, that description is the fact that, like Cthulhu, it seems to have these these dreams that emanate out and, and you know, infect the minds of people around it. That maybe this is why the people in the um, in the cult are so bloodthirsty and mad. Maybe they've been infected by these dreams or driven mad by them. It's almost like the dream call of Glacky. That's a similar effect that say mm. those that drive those that reside close enough to it will go mad from the dreams that it sends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very much like that. 
so yeah, I think I mean that's something you could do quite a lot with. Um, I, like, yeah, I mean, for example, you know, if I wanted to riff on this and come up with my own variation on it, let's say that you know you decide to do a follow-up to this that's set in the present day, because of say you know a hurricane that hits Louisiana or. Or an oil spill or something like that, or, you know, some kind of natural or man-made catastrophe, that this thing's habitat is destroyed or, you know, made uninhabitable to it, and it moves on somewhere else. You know, let's say that, you know, it's driven out and it gets, you know, driven into the sewer system underneath Louisiana, uh, underneath New Orleans. Mm -hmm. What the hell happens then? Mm. I would set that in one of the bars in the French Quarter. Because uh, when I went to New Orleans a few years back, there were plenty of uh, stories of one particular bar that they said, we haven't closed in the last dozen hurricanes or so. We didn't close for Katrina. We kept on and we kept drinking all the way through it. Have your investigators half cut sat in that bar <laughs> as this thing starts coming up through the uh, through the taps? Well, no, not even coming up through the taps. I mean, I think it's actually less frightening as a physical presence. The fact that it is sitting underneath uh, the city, driving everyone mad. Mm-hmm. The fact that you, you you've got the investigators. They're sitting there in the bar. They're having their drinks. I mean, maybe they never even see that there's a monster. <laughs> but what's happening is outside. You know, the, the the world is just going mad by degrees. Or anyone that passes out in the corner of the bar from too much booze is starting to see something. Yeah, yeah. One thing I noticed with this cult is that they don't have some big thing at the end of the story that they're going to do. You know, they're not summoning Cthulhu, whereas often in Call of Cthulhu scenarios, it's, you know, we've got to get together and, and stop the cult doing their big thing, their big ritual, summoning this god, opening this gateway. Kind of we see that in the Dunwich Horror, but in this... They're just kind of a, a cult that's kind of going on, going on, yeah. and they're here now, and they were here decades ago, and they'll be here in decades to come. But is there anything actually to stop? When the stars become right, then there'll be something to stop. Hmm. Yep. But but in the meantime, I and mean, this does go back to the idea of them just being idiots. The, the, they are echoing these ideas that have been passed down you know maybe you know we, we talk about castro you know having had uh, some knowledge of the necronomicon and knowing about these quote deathless chinamen unquote uh, you know who seem to be in touch with greater forces but you know fundamentally these people don't really seem to know that much they're following through you know perhaps empty rituals and and just repetitions of things that they should be doing and you know using them as some excuses to you know indulge their basic desires that doesn't make them any less terrifying in fact in a lot of ways it makes them even more frightening because they're unpredictable potentially they're nihilistic and they're kind of horrifyingly human speaking of castro the leader of the cult from the louisiana swamp he has a number of things, observations about, about the Great Old Ones that you know may have a bearing on our gaming. For a start, he says the Great Old Ones all lay in stone houses in Rillier, preserved by the spells of Mighty Cthulhu. Now, I don't know what you do with that in a game, but the spells of Mighty yeah. Cthulhu, you know, we might have spells, but his spells are going to be better, right? Yeah, and, <laughs> and what, I mean, these are the spells that Cthulhu himself casts. 
what happens if a human being gets hold of some of these? Yeah. Um, because, you know, e even assuming that they could somehow get enough power or magic points or whatever to actually cast one, they're certainly not going to understand it. Hell, as we talked about earlier, you know, the, the, we're talking about words and names that cannot be pronounced properly by uh, human mouths. So, I mean, does this suddenly turn into, you know, Ash in The Evil Dead, you know, standing there going, Klaatu Barata Necktie? You know, what happens when people get these spells catastrophically wrong? I can't get the impression of them getting hold of the BFG from Doom, pulling it, and uh, the, the gun either misfires and they get thrown 30 stories back the other direction from the recoil. But <laughs> it is power too great for humans to, to handle, so they just become a smear on the wall. Yeah, we're talking about a, a spell, a, you know, what we might class as a god would cast here. I mean, what if a human being, you know, got hold of that spell and, say, tried to cast it in order to preserve their own life to try to stop them from dying? But this spell is, is hugely more powerful than they understand. I mean, they've tapped into enough power to actually cast it. What happens if they end up casting it on, you know, an area, a city block or a neighbourhood or something like that? Mm -hmm. And these people, are they then put into stasis? They, you know, create, are they somehow made otherworldly in their flesh the way the great old ones are are they prevented uh, from ever dying uh, no matter what torments they go through reminds me of a manly wade wellman story still valley mm. yeah well here's what happens with cthulhu castro then goes on to say they could lie awake in the dark this is the great old ones and think whilst uncounted millions of years rolled by as a regular insomniac, I know that feeling all too well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that seems pretty scary to me that, yeah. you know, these things are down in the ocean, kind of asleep or dead, but they're dreaming and they're thinking all that time. Yeah, I mean, again, if you had the idea of a human casting that by accident, what happens if you then, say, have a Call of Cthulhu scenario set in the present day or the 1920s or whatever, where someone got hold of that magic and cast it, say, 2,000 years ago. And, you know, you're an archaeologist maybe and you stumble across somewhere where there are all these stone tombs and people have put themselves in it trying to emulate the, <laughs> the great old ones, trying to give themselves eternal life. And they have been lying there in the darkness for 2,000 years just thinking. What, 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 what are those thoughts going to have done to them? I'm not saying it was mummies, but it was mummies. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, they're going to be a bit gooey. Well, mm -hmm. on the other hand, I mean, you know, it, the, the simple answer would be, you know, they've gone mad and they've got to be, you know, a bit stabby when you, you wake them up. Alternatively, what if 2,000 years of contemplation in the dark, kept alive by alien magic, has transformed their consciousness? What if this has given them some form of ultimate enlightenment? Wouldn't that be even more terrifying? Take your san and redistribute it into your int and pow. Yeah. yeah. And then Castro goes on. Even now they talked in their tombs. Their talk is transmitted thought. And this goes back to the idea of you know, Cthulhu's dreams being broadcast as yeah. Melier comes up. And this polypus mass you know, broadcasting its dreams. This, to me, has always been the most interesting aspect of Cthulhu as an entity. Forget about him being this kind of walking mountain and you know, having tentacles and eating 1d4 investigators per round and so on. It's the fact that he dreams out loud and that his dreams are alien and maddening and transformative and that they will drive some people to acts of violence and barbarity. They will drive others to acts of insane creativity. 
Do you remember that 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 pilot that was made for rough the magic TVs? Yeah, rough magics, uh, and and that was. That was the premise of the series, mm. that you know, it was you know, this government agency that uh, was going around trying to find people who had been touched by the sleeper or the dreamer and had had their consciousnesses transformed and, and deal with that. And I think that would be a fantastic premise for a campaign. But there's more from Castro, if I may. Mm. He, uh, is, he tells how... In the past, chosen men talked with the entombed great old ones. So this was before Rillier sank, when they were just in this big city of stone tombs. So chosen men would talk with them, but then it sank. Rillier sank beneath the waves, and they were cut off, and they couldn't receive the dreams anymore. But then, interestingly, he says, then came, so after the sinking of Rillier, came the black spirits out of the earth, mouldy and shadowy and full of dim rumours picked up in caverns beneath forgotten sea bottoms. But of these, Castro dared not speak much. I was suddenly thinking that puts the um, another angle on Corpse City, if there were all the corpses of the mm. dead but dreaming great old yes. ones there. Mm. But these, these uh, how were they described? Black shadows? or? Uh, the black spirits out of the earth, mouldy and shadowy. Yeah. So I... Rillier sinks, and these things kind of come out. But this seems to me a little bit like Rillier sank, and these things kind of looked around and said, oh, it's all right to come out now. And they came out and sort of haunt the earth thereafter. But they mm. sound a bit like the bat-winged things in the swamp. Potentially. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost as if they've come out now that Rillier's gone down. It's... Again, I mean, it's hard to, to quantify. I mean, the alternative is that they are somehow acting as intermediaries, as Rillier has gone down. They've been released to somehow at least keep that tenuous connection between the Great Old Ones and their, their human pawns uh, alive. But they're almost like uh, repeaters or you know, um, you know, broadcast beacons. But curious that Castro talked about Rillier and Cthulhu and like, these horrors, but he's reluctant to speak much yeah. of these black shadowy things that have come out now as much as i know some people really don't like it um i know brian lumley came up with cthulhu's good twin how about they're the antithesis of the great old ones that that's why he doesn't like to speak about them is because these are forces of good rather than forces that he worships that's uh, that admittedly is if you're interpreting uh, brian lumley as being anything even vaguely canonical uh but yeah i i, I don't know if anyone's ever done anything with those black spirits but uh, yeah I'd, I'd be inclined to see whether i could find some way of well also yeah. there seems to be quite a lot of implication that they, these things have come out from Ah, again, places beneath the earth. And we see this yeah. a lot. Lovecraft doesn't go into it here, but we see it quite a lot in... Rats in the Walls. Rats in the Walls yeah. and other places. Oh, and, and, and the yeah. statement of Randolph Carter. Yeah. These places under the earth, great sweeping vistas of, of underground cities and so on that Lovecraft never really thoroughly gets into, but he seems to be preoccupied with. And here he's kind of perhaps hinting at a link with that. Hmm. What if we could follow them down there? Why would you want to? I don't know, but, you know. 
But, I mean, if these things are coming forth from, from Rillier, if they are somehow connected to the Great Old Ones, you're talking about these days in which mankind could talk to the Great Old Ones and perhaps, you know, learn their knowledge and, you know, perhaps get some of that really dangerous magic. These black spirits could be kind of echoes or ghosts of that, you know, uh, embodiments of that knowledge that's still out there. I mean, almost like a, you know, a, a hideous living library that you can go out there and speak to and interact with directly. You talked about the people, the cultists, getting knowledge from Cthulhu and the Great Old Ones. I mean, ultimately, we're told, aren't we, that when the Old Ones rise, mankind will become as they are, and they'll teach us new ways to, to kill and, and so on and take joy in it. So that seems to be almost an aim of the cultists, to achieve that level of freedom. I mean, from what we see with the uh, the ceremony in, in Louisiana... They're there already. I mean, they're, you know, they're killing with wanton abandon and slaking their bloodlust. So they've already achieved that. So I, I guess they're just perhaps, if they're not working towards some grand end goal, what could still make them frightening, make their plans frightening? Well, one is that, you know, they have evangelical fervour, potentially, that having achieved this, this sense of release from human morals and, you know, this embrace of, of bloodlust that perhaps they want to share that. Mm. You know, they, they see this as an enlightened way of being and they want other people to join them in this state of mind. Yeah, I think that's one of the scarier things is the human capacity to sort of follow the crowd, the spirit of the mob, you know, that, that mm. kind of frightening thing when a group of people just get swept up with the, you know, the blood frenzy or whatever um, and just go on some sort of uh, terrible rampage. In the cold light of day, they might think better of, but... You know, people do get carried up in that stuff. And of course, moving on from Louisiana and Castro, we move on to what is probably the most iconic part of this in gaming terms, which is really in Cthulhu himself. Well, I say iconic. Uh, it's something that, you know, as gamers, we all know. You know, we all know who Cthulhu is and so on. But how many times do you actually see really in Cthulhu in games? Uh, I can think of twice. Uh, once in a campaign, once in a one-shot. Yeah, I've used Cthulhu once in a sort of a dream vision of him. Usually, I think if I've done anything approaching it, it's been maybe a star spawn, which is like big, but it's not Cthulhu. It's Cthulhu light. Yeah, it kind <laughs> of is. It's, a, it's an apartment block rather than a mountain. So what do you do with Cthulhu in a game? If you're not just going to... I mean, you can't... Unless you're playing, I don't know, maybe Cthulhu tech, where your players are like all armoured up and you know, got kind of robot technology or something then. Or you've got a big steamer ship and you can crash into him and make well, him disappear for a short time. What do you do? Well, I mean, you've got a couple of options. One is having him appear off screen. So, you know, the way he does for the, the start of this story in that, you know, he is there as this presence, the descending mm. dreams. Is there any way you've used him on screen in front of the players? Physical? No, I, but if I were to do so, I, what I'm, I would probably be inclined to do would be some kind of post-apocalyptic thing i you know it's something i haven't done myself i know a few people have but something setting something after the stars are right after the mm. great old ones are out you know what kind of world is that where cthulhu and the other great old ones are walking across the landscape also i think if you were to set that then this massive thing is stomping around in my mind, Cthulhu would be like ants running around on the ground. Yeah, yeah I, I might accidentally step on a few and kill them, but I'm not going to 
necessarily seek them out so i think if your player characters were there and you had cthulhu turn up it's a bit like cloverfield you know sometimes the big monster might zoom in on the people but sometimes he's just totally oblivious to them and just stomping along so you could be there and cthulhu could come stomping past and you'd be kind of shaken by his uh, pounding of his feet but then he you know you'd lose a bunch of sanity points and yeah. sort of witness him passing and then maybe you'd wake up the next day in you know in a ditch in horror no, and, have, and have witnessed him going by oh yeah i don't think that would be the path i'd go down yeah under circumstances like that you know trying to fight cthulhu makes about as much sense as trying to fight a hurricane yeah, you know, he, he he's there. He's a well. You're not fighting. That's the point I'm making. You yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, you couldn't. Yeah. So, it would be more along the lines of how the world would change. Yeah. You know, obviously, everything would fall apart. But you know how you know humanity would survive in those last cracks of of sanity in this this world turned to to madness and horror. I'm just wondering if it suddenly gives a whole different uh, take on the dismiss spells. So you've got call and dismiss um, deity. What happens if you got hold of uh, the campaign was trying to get hold of the dismiss spell so that you could try and banish them off Earth or send them to somewhere else if the stars were still right? But that call and dismiss thing to me seems like if we've magically summoned him here, we can magically dismiss him. But if he's just here, he's woken up from under the ocean and he's right here, yeah. could we dismiss him? And that and seems a lot of power to be putting in human hands. The other side to what we just talked about is Rillier itself. So we have the corpse city of Rillier, this utterly alien, horrible place that, you know, I mean, forget about its inhabitants. The place itself is sanity blasting enough. It has angles a man can get lost in. It has hidden depths and horrors. It has been buried at the bottom of the sea for, you know, incalculable time. What, what, what does that kind of present to us as, as keepers? It's a great place to go if you want to get away from the Hounds of Tindalos. Well, okay. (laughs) But a difficult one to portray, I think. You can sort of describe it, you describe it once as, you know, there are strange angles and there's a surface that's convex and then you look again and actually it's concave. There are weird angles that don't add up to 360 and and so on. And and what do you do next time? Do you just repeat all that again? Because it's it's a bit like thing of of portraying, you know, the cold of the Antarctic or something. You've... It gets tiresome if you just have to keep repeating yeah. these the same phrases. Yeah, so how yeah. do you reinforce the horror of that location without just constantly saying, oh, it's weird and you can't understand it? By having specific encounters or specific things happening that, you know, may, maybe, you know, as, as well as sort of seeing all these weird angles and so on, at some point you encounter someone who has been lost for ages, who has just kind of worked their way out and has been transformed by the experience, has been driven completely mad. Maybe they've brought something with them. I'd probably approach it also with the mechanical effects, as well as obviously set pieces like that, set encounters and so forth, that there would be an inherent danger to doing anything in the area, whether it be combined dodge with any other type of role that you want to perform to try and do anything physically there, or maybe even mathematics, so that you have to roll under both of your skills to perform an action successfully. That your maths don't work anymore. (laughs) Maths maths you can work out non-Euclidean geometry. I kind of like the idea of maths not working anymore. <laughs> well, I don't actually, know what that would mean, but... Well, actually, taking the mathematical approach to it, there's a, an old science fiction story called Mimsy with the Borogroves, which was written under the pseudonym Lewis Paget by uh, Henry Cutner and C. Elmore. 
And I mean, it's, it's donkey's years since I've read it, but I can see it being good inspiration for dealing with Rillier because it is fundamentally about using mathematics to sort of see between dimensions and uh, to go to the space between spaces. If you're looking at the film version of that, The Last Mimsy, that is a very different film. <laughs> yes, yeah, they decided to take everything that was horrifying and, and compelling and interesting about it and throw it out and make it into something cute and kid-friendly. Which... I want the toy. The little bunny's cute. Fuck off, Matt. Fuck right off. Oh. That bunny is worth a hell of a lot of money now. I don't fucking care. <laughs> no pleasing I'm, him, is there? I'm, no. I'm, I'm sure the cock of the horse that killed Catherine the Great is worth a lot of money as well. I don't <laughs> want it on my mantelpiece. <laughs> Now we have a brief interview with Andrew Lehman and Sean Branny of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. So we're joined by Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman of the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Hi there, guys. Hello. Greetings. So on our latest episode, we've been discussing H.P. Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu. You're well known for having made the silent film thereof. Now, it seems like a, a very complex story with lots of characters and stories within stories. You know, what was it made you choose this for your first movie? Well, partly it was the, the fact that everybody said it couldn't possibly be done. Ah. <laughs> and, and partly because, you know, it's obviously a, a, one of his greatest, uh, def, you know, a defining story of his whole life's work, um, one that's inspired the game that got us, well, me at least, into Lovecraft in the first place. It's, you know, been a sort of a foundational piece of culture that we wanted to try to tackle. We'd also done some humor projects before. We had done uh, our Lovecraftian Broadway musical, A Shuggeth on the Roof, and then we did uh, A Very Scary Solstice, which was a collection of Lovecraftian uh, Christmas carols, which were all great fun, but uh, we we didn't want to kind of pigeonhole ourselves as the the funny Lovecraft guys. And so as we looked at doing a motion picture, um, taking on one of Lovecraft's most serious works uh, and something that, that really gets into the heart and complexity of his writing seemed like a terrific challenge. And because it, we had the idea that doing it in the style of the 1920s when it was written would be a way of getting, of getting at the material that would, that would allow the sort of aesthetic distance that lets you treat it more seriously than, than you might do if it's done in a, you know, contemporary color and sound and all that stuff. Doing it as a black and white silent film, let us uh, really delve into the whole world of Lovecraft himself. And through that vehicle of, of the silent movie, I mean, it's fantastic for the aesthetics and the period was it was that just kind of serendipitous that that would allow you to do it on a smaller budget as well? The two kind of go hand in hand, or was that not really the case? It, it certainly didn't hurt. Uh, you know, I think if we had had more resources, we might have used them. But both Andrew and I have backgrounds in theater and are hardened to the reality of trying to do very complicated forms of storytelling without a lot of resources and certainly um, shooting in a, a more theatrical style where there is that aesthetic distance that Andrew was talking about, lets you do things like, you know, looking at a, a boat on the ocean where you go, instead of going down and actually shooting on location on the ocean to use uh, sheets of fabric and some glitter and wave it. And, and you're creating 
a form of ocean in the audience's mind without having to, uh, as filmmakers, deal with the reality of, of shooting on the ocean, which is a pain, frankly. We also had, yeah. a, you know, David Robertson, who was our cinematographer and editor, was, you know, a crucial member of the team in, in letting us get away with a lot of the stuff that we got away with. He is, uh, you know, Sean and I, like Sean was saying, we're trained in theater, but David's, David's uh, training is in cinematography. He really knows how to shoot black and white. He really knows how to make the most out of, you know, he can shoot beautiful scenes using just one light bulb. He's really uh, remarkably gifted as a cinematographer. So it was, you know, having him on board also uh, makes, uh, stretches a dollar because he can make a 25 cent set look like a million bucks. Well, it sure looks good on screen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the end result certainly speaks to you know, the skill of everyone involved. I, what would you say was the, the hardest part of bringing all this to the screen? What, what was the biggest challenge you faced? Well, for, from my standpoint, at least as you know, I, I wrote the screenplay for it and was a producer on it. And I think one of the, the challenges we had is having not really done a, a cinema project of that magnitude before. Traditionally, when you make a movie, you you get everything built and you get everybody hired, and then as fast as humanly possible, you you get everything shot. So you shoot on this set and shoot on that set and shoot on this set, and within you know six eight weeks, typically a, a feature film is shot. And here we we really kind of chipped away at the edges at, on it. You know, when we started production, we didn't know how long it would take. We had no idea what it would cost. We just sort of kept chipping away at it. And so as a result, we were actually shooting over the span of at least a year and a half, if not maybe even a little more, okay. which is again, you know, not, not the way no movies are normally made for a good reason. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, I, cast members die, cast members move away, you know, all, all kinds of things can happen. And so I think trying to sustain production over that length of time was one of, one of the great challenges. And yeah, it let us, you know, fortunately we didn't have to, Right. You know, we didn't have to spend our entire budget all at once. We were able to sort of keep feeding the animal, but it was uh, not a traditional way of making a motion picture. And, and we certainly learned why that's not yeah. a traditional way. <laughs> Yeah, it actually yeah, reminds me a little bit of um, the, the stories of Peter Jackson making bad taste. Uh, I, I, yeah, his, his first feature film, I, I think it was a very similar thing that he made that over the course of years for exactly the same reason. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it as a uh, as a strategy. We were very lucky that we didn't lose at least some of the sailors from the alert and various other cast members along the way. Because some of those guys, their first day of shooting and their last day of shooting was months and months and months apart. Mm, wow. Yeah. So when I think of the HPLHS, you guys really seem to be perfectionists in what you produce in the quality of the both the audio and the physical items you manufacture. You know, when you were making the film, did you have to make compromises that, you know, you were maybe a bit less than happy with, things you had to leave out or anything like that? Uh, you know, you always have to make some compromises. I think we were not, we were not able to stage a big uh, fight between the, the sailors of the uh, Alert and the sailors of the Emma which we might have done if we had had, you know, real ships to work with or a bigger cast or more resources. I wouldn't say, though, in retrospect, I don't, it's not like I miss any of that or regret it. Well, yeah, I, I would say, you know, 
if for anybody who's never made a motion picture, you know, the, the, the challenge is you are, you're always up against the clock. Time is money uh, in making movies. And, you know, you always wish you had more, more time uh, to mm -hmm. work with it. So there are certain things that if we had had more time to work with the actors and more time to set up, you know, uh, certain types of shots, like Andrew, you know, Andrew was just saying, there are things we would have done. Um, but again, you, you got to go, you know, when you're in the, the heat of the moment, you go, you know, we, we need to let these people go home. We need to feed them. We need to, you know, do certain, some of the actual practical realities on set that, uh, you know, that really, you know, all but perhaps the, and even frankly, the most giant budget motion pictures are still going, you know, a minute of time on the Call of Cthulhu set may have only equaled $10. A minute of time on, on you know, the set for whatever Spider-Man 19 might, you know, might be eight and a half million dollars for that minute. And they can't take an extra minute because, you know, the, the resources ultimately are are limited. And it's also invariably the case that, you know running out of resources forces you to think more creatively how to solve the problem mm. with what you have at hand. And sometimes that leads you down a fascinating and very rewarding creative path that you would never have taken. If you could just solve all your problems with money, you would, you wouldn't find fun, creative ways of shooting this scene or that scene or getting this effect or that effect. Right. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Hey, Drilling down to the story itself a bit, um, I, one thing that we were bouncing around a little bit when we had a discussion uh, when we were recording the episode itself, uh, we were interested in getting your opinion on this, is about the Cthulhu cult itself. Um, I, they they lay out what they're all about in terms of you know waiting for the stars to come right and their their little role in helping to free Cthulhu and the great old ones but i mean, what what do you see as being their their actual purpose the rest of the time while while they're waiting these strange eons for the stars to come right again well i i think like a lot of cults and frankly you know religious organizations in general there's a feeling of empowerment that comes through the, the you take care of your God and you feel like your God is going to take care of you. And I think, you know, most, most days are not the day that Cthulhu is going to show up. And so the cult goes and, you know, does their, does their things to, to honor their God and is fed by an underlying conviction that the, the prophecies and the, the great, you know, boons that they will be given once, you know, the world is returned to the great old ones uh, is coming for them. And I think, you know, there's also a, a sense of, mm, I, you know, man, mankind thrives on ritual. And I think it's why all religions are founded to one degree or another on ritual and the Cthulhu cults rituals are of a particularly, you know, orgiastic and primal nature. And I suspect, you know, the folks who were involved in that found, you know, a lot of enjoyment in the in the buttoned up world of the 1920s to be able to go out in the swamp and rip your clothes <laughs> off and kill some people and dance around the fire and, you know, have a, a type of orgiastic lic license given to them by their God that otherwise did not exist in that society. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one. <laughs> So when you first read The Call of Cthulhu, if you can recall, your 
emotional reaction to it, how you felt about it. Did you feel it was a, do you feel it's a frightening story or a story of wonder or what do you think that, that initial reaction is to the story? Uh, I, I, I guess I would say for myself that it's not uh, f- frightening exactly, not in a like imminent danger kind of frightening. It is more of a story of, of awesome grandeur and, and wonder and sort of of possi- possibility and 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 you know secrets unplumbed secrets and you know of of mortal man just just lifting up the edge of of the secret and getting just a glimpse of what's underneath i think that might be what attracted me about it when i first read it mm-hmm. yeah i think for for me you know trying to remember the teenage yeah. teenage sean with his paperback uh <laughs> copy of Call of Cthulhu. But yeah, there there is a sense of awe in it. And for me, as I was discovering Lovecraft, it was a new kind of horror. And, you know, the 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 notion of us all sort of being at the whims of these great old things that, you know, mess with our dreams and our thinking and our reason and you know, the only thing that protects us is the fact that we're not smart enough to figure out what's going on. Uh, I, I think it's just a, the, to me, the master stroke of that story is that, you know, we're, we're really saved by our ignorance um, was just the kind of idea I had never confronted before in, in literature. And, and, you know, to me, it was a, that, that, that sort of awe and wonder, is I think to me the most effective quality in in the story. I, uh, do you find that that's been diluted at all by uh, all the sort of pastiches and Cthulhu plushies and coloring books and children's books and and so on that have been coming out since then? I you know Cthulhu has become such a part of pop culture and has become defanged in so many ways. Do you, do, do you do you think there's still something frightening there, or or, or are we in danger of losing that? Uh, I think there's, you know, certainly there are a lot of of pastiches and parodies and, you know, joke references and stuff. But I think underneath it all, it's still a powerful set of ideas. And and like Sean was saying, you know, the, the, the things that drive the Cthulhu cult are the things that drive some very frightening real world <laughs> movements. And, you know, those are forces that continue to be scary and powerful and uh so yeah i i i think there's room for both and and uh i think the fundamental ideas remain powerful even if we do have fun with them sometimes yeah yeah i th- i think the for for a lot of people whose knowledge of lovecraft or or even just cthulhu comes through pop culture they're like, oh, it's it's that tall guy with the octopus head, you know, and, and the slippers and he shows up on South Park or whatever. And you don't I, th- I think for people whose experience of him comes through pop culture, you don't really get what it means. It's a really shallow thing where you're glomming onto the monster without really realizing what it is about the monster that's frightening. And it's not the head full of tentacles. It's, it's a whole other Thing so you know I, I don't mind that people have fun with it all I think I think they should but I think we also we have fun with it absolutely but oh, yeah. anytime I go back to that story and you know we just finished adapting it for the third time uh, here um, you know the actual what Lovecraft's actually talking about really is a pretty disturbing 
notion. And if you give it a little time to, if you give it enough time to give it some credence, uh, there's still a lot of power there, I think. Mm. Yeah, reading it again, like last week, it really strikes me how, you know, you read a single sentence and often there's just so much in that one sentence. Yeah. To, to, to pull apart. I think that's, you know, that's why it's a classic and enduring piece of work that has inspired so many riffs and takeoffs and adaptations. It's because there's some real meat on those bones. Now, a moment ago, Sean, you just referred to a third adaptation of The Call of Cthulhu. Because we just can't get enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we did, uh, of course, the silent film of The Call of Cthulhu. And then as part of our Dark Adventure Radio Theater series, we sort of flipped that on its head. And instead of having the images essentially with no sound, and then we switched to the sound with no images in doing a radio play version of it. Uh, and then one of the big projects that uh, Andrew and I have been working on here for the last couple of years now uh, that we just announced is we're doing the we've done the complete fiction of H.P. Lovecraft as an audiobook. So it's a, a just a reading of all the stories that he wrote over his entire lifetime. And one of those, of course, is The Call of Cthulhu. Uh, and so that put us back from, you know, in, in the silent film, we're looking to adapt it for certain purposes and to get certain things out of it, doing the radio play. We're also with a different set of objectives, trying to tell the same story. And here for the uh, audiobook version where all that other stuff goes away and it's just back to a reading of Lovecraft's literal words off the page. Uh, that, that's an amazing amount of words as well. I mean, the, <laughs> the, 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 this, you know, actually, Call of is pretty short compared yeah. to uh, the longer stories. So, oh, no, I was, uh, I was thinking of the fact that you've done all of Lovecraft's stories. I mean, that's, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, a it's, it's a little more than 50 hours uh, if you want to read it front to back. So Wow. <laughs> and so how can people get hold of this? Well, we, we just announced it, um, the HP Lovecraft Historical Society. We have a, a pretty substantial presence on the web at hplhs.org. Uh, we have a store there that's uh, connected to our website, and we have, I don't know, 150, something like that, different types of products that uh, Lovecraft fans might dig. And we just announced the audiobook is available for pre-order right now, and we anticipate uh, actually uh, putting it in people's hands uh, for Lovecraft's birthday at Necronomicon. And for those who don't know, it's uh, August 20th uh, that we'll actually have the, the physical, physical, tangible version uh, as well as downloads for people who, who don't deal with physical, tangible things anymore. I'm looking forward to picking up a copy of that, definitely. Oh, we'll see, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty colossal. It is a lot of material indeed from his earliest childhood sketches to obviously, you know, his novel length masterworks and uh, everything in between. So it's... It's quite a it's quite a collection. So is this just uh, the stuff that Lovecraft wrote on his own, or just include any of the collaborations and revisions? We uh, we decided to to cleave to 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 S.T. Joshi's distinctions that he made for his collected version of the complete works of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, which he did for a Barnes and Noble publication. Uh, he was gracious enough a to let us use that, and in that one he. Uh, includes two stories which are sort of not pure Lovecraft, and that's uh, Under the Pyramids, where really Harry Houdini, you know, I think gave the vaguest notion of the sort of story he wanted. I'm not even sure Houdini provided a title for that one. So yeah. it's really 99.9% .9 Lovecraft. 
Uh, and then uh, Through the Gates of the Silver Key with E. Hoffman Price is almost always ends up in the Lovecraft pile and not in the collaboration pile. That's how Joshi did it, and we decided to stick with that. So, um, again, I think it's one of those where, where the thought is it really is all but uh, a, a pure Lovecraft story. So that's kind of where we drew the line for this. Um, and it was it wasn't like we needed any more material, so yeah. <laughs> uh, it was it was a lot to work with uh, to put to put all that together. So, uh, and who knows if it you know turns out being popular, you know maybe we'll we'll go and look at uh, some of the revisions and uh, ghost written works and posthumous collaborations and stuff like that that are slightly more tangentially uh, Howard's. But uh, this this core set is it's uh, seventy four stories, and yeah, it. Uh, what, Fantastic, uh, Josh yeah, so. marvelous. And what else might you have in the pipeline? Is there anything else you can tell us about that you're working on? Well, we'll at uh, Necronomicon in Providence in a in about a month's time. We will be doing two episodes of Dark Adventure Radio Theater live on stage. Um, we're going to be doing um, the most recent episode, Haunter of the Dark, and we're going to be doing the immediately previous episode, the brotherhood of the beast, the great big, uh, globe trotting adventure. That's uh, based on a chaosium role-playing game. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're, we're going to start working on the next episode of, of dark adventure radio theater pretty soon. We haven't quite nailed down exactly. We've got a few different ones in, in mind, but we haven't necessarily, we haven't completely decided which exact one will be next, but it's, it's a weird thing about, you know, when Andrew and I first started doing all this and that, you know, we were, we were high school kids and then college kids when we formed the society. And, you know, it's, it's so weird now to be old dudes and, and, you know, it's like looking at a production calendar that, that rolls out 18 months going, well, we could put this one in here, but then we're going to need more time for this. And we've got, you know, lawyers and accountants and we have, we now have a, an actual retail store here in Southern California. We had to move uh, this spring. And so our new headquarters is an actual, you know, place that customers walk in off the street and, and buy things on. So, oh, yeah, it's it's so weird being like Cthulhu grown-ups. <laughs> Wait a minute. So you've got an actual bricks and mortar store yeah. for, the, for the HPLHS? Yeah, we've had, a, you know, we've had a headquarters actually ever since we filmed Call of Cthulhu back in sure. 2003 to 2005. We were yeah. in Nick Offerman's uh, wood shop, and we were there for five or six years, and then we moved to uh, uh, an old 19, a World War II rivet factory <laughs> Uh, where we were in there for seven years. And uh, the landlord, of course, is very common practice here in Southern California is gentrifying and fixing up and making everything fancy. So that sort of drove us out. And we uh, came into uh, an antique store not too far from where we used to be. And uh, we have Lovecraftized it. And uh, yeah, now we do game nights here and readings and prop making nights. And, uh, you know, we have a variety of events open to the public as well as are actually running a brick and mortar shop and then our whole, you know, web organization and our whole production entity. So we're, we're, we're busy guys. <laughs> weird, weird. It's <laughs> <laughs> oh, amazing. And uh, obviously, I mean, the, the call of Cthulhu film went down really well, well enough that uh, you, you made another film after that, the whisper in darkness, uh, which uh, is every bit as marvelous. I think I, think as, as the call of cthulhu was i uh, do you have any more plans to to do more lovecraftian feature films we we do you know we were we were fortunate you know 
we, when we made Call of Cthulhu, we just made a movie because we wanted to make a movie and, and said we didn't know what it would cost and how long it would take. And, and we learned an awful lot through making that film. Uh, and then we made The Whisper in Darkness. Uh, and we also learned a lot through <laughs> making that film. And one of the things after doing two, I think we've learned is that continuing to make motion pictures where we personally and solely are, are funding them. Um, it, it's not again, how it's normally done. We bear a preposterous amount of risk. Um, and so we, you know, we are interested in making other Lovecraft movies. We'd still like to make, I think, bigger and more ambitious projects. And we've really kind of butted up against the threshold of what it makes sense to do, mm. uh, producing it ourselves. We've, we've had some conversations with a few different production companies here in, in California and they're interested, but you know, they have lots of other projects going too. So um, we've had some interesting conversations and at the moment, most of them are in a sort of holding pattern, but yeah, we definitely have plans and ambitions, but like Sean was saying, we've, we've grown to the point where we'll need to get somebody else involved in the process and uh, we're still working to find just the right partner for that for that endeavor. And that that said, we have developed a specific Lovecraft story as a period feature film um, uh, through a set of conversations with this uh, this other producer. And so, you know, if they turn around and go, you know, ding ding, <laughs> you guys are up next. Uh, you know, we we have something on the burner that's that's ready to move forward with, or you know, we feel it is. Um, that we've put a fair bit of time into developing. So uh, it's not like we'd be starting from scratch uh, on, on whatever the next motion picture might be. And, and getting other people's participation, you know, is there are other projects around town that, you know, their, their success or failure drives the executive thinking in Hollywood. So, you know, as long as, as long as Guillermo del Toro doesn't make his version of at the mountains of madness, there will always be this will a Lovecraft movie work question and and you know they've they recently announced hbo is going to be making a tv series of uh this novel called lovecraft country everybody yes. will be everybody will be very curious to see how that goes and will that will that either encourage other lovecraft lovecraftian projects or will it be another nail in the coffin for Lovecraftian projects, we just, you know, we don't know. We'll, we'll wait and see like everybody else. If, if they make money, they'll make more. If they don't make money, they won't want to make more. You know, that's, that's kind of the way it rolls out here. So, Yeah, because there's a question that crops up quite often, particularly, well, because we move in the gaming circles. A question that often crops up is, have we reached the kind of peak Cthulhu saturation? And I kind of think, you know, like you say, if Del Toro were to make Mountains of Madness, you know, we might only just be seeing the start of the Cthulhu, you know, wave in society. And sometimes I always, you know, wonder, do we really want Lovecraft to be more famous? Because sometimes it's fun to, you know, have like your own private playground. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily want Cthulhu to go mainstream. But at the same, then on the other hand, I think, no, I want Cthulhu to go mainstream. So I'm torn personally, yeah. Yeah, it, it, definitely cut, it definitely cuts both ways. And I think, you know, like the Tolkien fans, you know, if you were a fan of Tolkien in the 1980s, you know, it was a different kind of thing. And, and, and I think um, there's both benefits and, and downsides to the, the ubiquitous fame that comes with, you know, major, major Hollywood motion pictures behind it. And I think 
you know, Lovecraft, I definitely don't think he's at all pushing up against the ceiling of fame and exposure. I think yeah. it'd be a whole other thing when you see him on, you know, cups at McDonald's and, you know, <laughs> Shug's Burger or whatever, because God knows they'd make it. Happy meal. You know, absolutely. The unhappy meal, the madness <laughs> meal. You know. um, well, we're, we're all about to say, you know, we were into to Cthulhu before he sold out and, you know, yeah, yeah. Went, went mainstream. <laughs> Well, some of the fun of the HPLHS is imagining a world in which Lovecraft was famous in his own lifetime. And, you know, what if what if we lived in a world where Lovecraft had where there were movies made from Lovecraft stories in the 1920s? And, you know, there really were unhappy meals and stuff. Sometimes it's fun to just imagine that alternate reality. Yeah. No, I think like a great many of us, your interest in Lovecraft, or a lot of it, came out of gaming in the first place. And um, you, with uh, some of the stuff you're doing in Dark Adventure Theatre these days, you seem to be going back to your gaming roots in some respects, aren't you? We've known the guys at Chaosium since Chaosium really kind of first came out with Call of Cthulhu oh, yeah. in, the, in the early 80s. So we've hmm. we've been along for the whole journey. And now that Chaosium, you know, with the return of Sandy... Um, sort of entered a Chaosium version, maybe 3.0. Uh, I don't know. You know, the, the actual leadership of the corporation has really changed. Um, we've been delighted to to sort of enter a new era of our relationship with Chaosium, and we're able to work collaboratively with them on adapting their story. You know, Keith Her- Herber Gaming Supplement, uh, the fungi from Yuggoth, was the the foundation upon which we built our Dark Adventure Radio theater show, uh, The Brotherhood right. of the Beast. And uh, a lot of fans were excited to see something, to see us do something that was more tied into the gaming experience than the purely literary experience. Uh, so it worked well on our side, and I think it worked well on the Chaosium side that a lot of people were into the games. This was sort of a new way to experience that. Uh, so we've been having uh, plenty of conversations with the fellows over at Chaosium about uh, how we may continue to work together to to both enhance uh the landscape for gamers as well as get some folks who are interested in what we're doing interested in the gaming side of things we certainly have dabbled back in some of that original stuff one thing that was mentioned earlier in this conversation was perfectionism and and what i would say is that i think because we got at least i got my first exposure to lovecraft through the game call of cthulhu from chaosium um I've, I at least have always been super interested in the detail that comes with like prop handouts, player aids and stuff like that. And, and I think, I, I don't know whether it's perfectionism or not, but it certainly is a, a fondness for that kind of detail that can, you know, withstand evidentiary scrutiny. Uh, props have to be so thorough that, you know, you can look at it and, and actually learn from them and, and the, the props further the storytelling. So going back to a Chaosium game, we've always included, you know, little prop handouts with Dark Adventure Radio Theater episodes, mm. and that comes directly from our gaming roots. So it felt it was a lot of fun to go back to an original Chaosium game to adapt a, a Dark Adventure episode from. And talking about uh, making the props for it with our <laughs> Brotherhood of the Beast, too, you know, the, we released two different versions of the, the show, and one of which was uh, on CD, and that had our traditional uh, four, four props included with it. But we also did a b- deluxe version of it where we took essentially every every meaningful prop that appeared in the course of the show and actually 
made it and put it in a vintage bag. So it ends up being a six pound bag full of maps and brochures and newspaper cuttings and, you know, all kinds of different tangible things made to the highest level of realism that we were reasonably able to pull off, which frankly was pretty darn good. Yeah. Some of them are pretty real. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's not just a, a, the occasional newspaper clipping. There's, you know, five, it, you know, the full half of a front page of a newspaper um, plus a bunch of other clippings and maps that unfold to be, you know, the size of a kitchen table. And there's all kinds of uh, telegrams and letters and pages torn from old books and diaries. And it's a fun, fun collection just to and when, through. When, when we took that on and decided, you know, let's make this super deluxe version of it, particularly with the gaming community in mind, we're like, will we, Will we ever be able to pay our printers bills for what it's going to cost to make this thing? And it turned out, you know, there were a lot of people who were who were very interested in a deluxe kind of high end collection of props that really told the story at a at a level of of, of verisimilitude that you know just isn't often seen. And because that's been successful, we've been able to look ahead to other uh, other possible projects that we've been contemplating and discussing with collaborators that might also include deluxe versions of it with you know, large numbers of props. It's a, it's a complicated equation to work on, but it is certainly something that, that we're considering because uh, it was very well received, especially by the gaming community. And we also try when we can to make prop documents that can have more than one purpose. A lot of them are you know, very specifically tied to a, a plot line and, and are very uh, full of specific detail. But where we can, we'll also do a version that can be customized to be used by a gamer in a plot of their own devising. So, you know, some of these props have a, a longer life than just being a, an accompaniment to a specific story. They can be used in a, a other games or other kinds of creative fun. So we can look forward to more gaming-related materials, both props and uh, dark theatre productions? I would, I would say that's probable. Yes. Yeah. Not, Excellent. Not terribly unlikely. <laughs> all right well a big thanks to sean Branny and andrew lehman of the hp lovecraft historical society for joining us thank yes, you very, thank much, you very much gentlemen we were very happy to join you thanks for the call our pleasure thank you well to wrap things up let's have a little thought about how we experience the story the call of cthulhu the reason i'm asking this is this, I think, is a very difficult story to read in the proper way these days. I mean, we've, we've talked about this before. In, in episode 50, we talked an awful lot about the pop culture uh, aspects of Cthulhu as a, 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 an entity. And Cthulhu has become part of the pop culture landscape. Yeah, I, I don't know about you two. I, even when I read this story you know, for the first time back in the early 80s, I read it because of the role-playing game. Um, and I'd already been exposed to some of the pop culture ideas around Cthulhu. I mean, they're not as, they weren't as ubiquitous then as they are now. But it made it very difficult even then to imagine what it would be like to read this story and have no idea what Cthulhu was to encounter this weird name early on, this growing sense of unease and so on, rather than, you know, oh, yeah, he's that bloke with all the tentacles who lives under the sea, and, yeah. Um, how do you go about sort of plugging back into the weird horror that is supposed to lie at the centre of this? Well, I'm not sure you can read it 
as somebody in the 1920s would have read it because obviously we all know what Cthulhu is or we have a, an idea our own ideas about Cthulhu but I think putting aside the the material from the games and the conceptions that you might have from images on the internet that you've seen of Cthulhu coming to this story it's so well written that sitting down and reading it it still has a kind of a freshness to it I think it's well written and there are things in there that even if you've read the story before that that certainly I'd forgotten um, so it still holds surprises is there a proper way to read it I don't know but or, you read it as you do or at least no a way to get you know kind of that 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 sort of thrill of weird horror out of it still well I think it's still there I think kind of riffing on what Paul said really because there's so much detail and there's so much rich description there a lot of it I mean, it's been years since I read it the last time round um, upon rereading it, there was stuff was mainly from Castro's interrogation that I thought, crap, I can't remember that bit. Mm. And was thinking that that could be a good basis for a story or a campaign or a scenario. So, yeah, there's, there's just so much information there, which you can't take it and digest it all in on one or two readings. It's going to, going to be something you rediscover with subsequent readings. And each time it is a new revelation, and there is that revelation and therefore the horror that comes from that. And for a story that's like 20 or 30 pages long... I mean, this once you've got through it, it's like you've read a novel. Really, there's a, there's, mm. a, there's very yeah. little spare in there. I don't know what one could cut out. I found I enjoyed it a lot more this time. Um, and not, not that I ever didn't enjoy it, but I enjoyed this time particularly stopping at certain points and just sort of consciously, actively trying to divorce. Everything that I associated with these, you know, the, the, these things. So uh, things like, you know, the, the, the couplet, you know, that is not dead, which eternal can lie, and with stranger yawns, even death may die. You know, that, that is such a part of the geek landscape that, you know, most people can, can recite it, you know, if they're involved with gaming at all. Even if they get a couple of the words the wrong way around. Yes, that guy, yes, yes. Yeah, but stopping and thinking about the implications of that and, and what it, you know, I, and, and just not reading it for oh yeah is that bit again i like this bit but actually sitting down and thinking all oh, right yo what what does this actually mean what we were talking about for before the the um the description of the corpse city of Rillier. you know just thinking you know what what you know i mean that's a cool phrase but you know what does it stir up in me i mean if i you know i don't just think of it as you know that phrase that i've heard 50 times before mm. what does that really imply to me yes how could i spin off of that and particularly when it comes to making games, yeah, you know, it's just you could take, as we said, a single sentence from it and just riff off of that in all sorts of directions. Yeah, and I think the Call of Cthulhu is a story that, more than any other I can think of, lends itself to that kind of. I I, I don't know if analysis is the right word, but that kind of. Um, revisiting that you know that kind of sweeping clear that you know that that william blake thing of you know cleaning the doors of perception if you can do that while reading the call of cthulhu and and not just look at it as you know that accumulation of pop culture tropes that you've known for years dear god is it a great story okay well that wraps up our look at hp lovecraft's the call of cthulhu until next time it's good night from me cheerio from me and farewell from me Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.